Good to see everybody. Now, this is uh, the first Sunday of the new year, and you know, what are you going to preach about on the first Sunday of the new year? Resolutions, right? <laughs> did anybody make a New Year's resolution? Does anybody? And, you know, Valerie did. She's the only one that did. <laughs> oh, and Sue did back there. And uh, resolutions. I've made, I've made a lot of resolutions. We went to a church one time uh, a long time ago, and every year around at the watch night service that church had, people would write on a three-by-five card their resolutions for the new year, and they would put them in a little box. And then at the, and then at the next year's thing, uh, the pastor would open the box, and people could come get their resolutions and see <laughs> how they did. And what was always funny to me was how many people put in, how few people took out. <laughs> uh, just a, just a, you know, it's an interesting thing to do. But I want to give a sermon today entitled, Love God and Love People. At some point in our church's past, this little phrase was set up as what looks to me like a, a purpose statement. Love God, love people. It's a great purpose for a local church. It's a good one. It's scriptural. Because we are all called to love God. That's all of us. But most of all, it is required in His children. But what does it mean to love God? You may hear people say that, I love God, I love God. What does it mean to love God? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, tell us that loving God is connected to obeying the commands of God. That is to live under His authority. God wanted Israel to obey His words, His commands, so that they would be blessed by Him, so that they would be better off for having obeyed by Him, so that they would be protected from harm, and that they would also enjoy additional blessings from God. Loving God is connected to obeying Him. Now, I want to ask you this question. To those of you who would say that you're a Christian, here's the question. Do you really care about God? Do you love God? Do you really love Him? I figure that most people here this morning would say, yes, yes, I love God. But we need to really dig into that statement, that affirmation. There are people who say that they love God with their mouth, but their lives actually say something different. Here's an illustration. A man or a woman who abuses their family, who wastes their family money on booze or drugs or who physically abuses them, they may say, I love my family. But we all know they don't. We all know that they really don't. They may have a sentimental attachment to their family, but if they really love their family, they would do the things that would show their love to their family. I hate to do this, but have you ever seen the movie The Princess Bride? All through the film, in the, in the early parts of it, Wesley says to Buttercup, isn't that her name, Buttercup? Says to Buttercup, she wants him to do so, she's kind of cruel to him, and all the way along, he says to her, as you wish, as you wish, as you wish. And over time, Buttercup, the light goes off in her brain, that when, she, when, he said, when Wesley says that to her, that he's actually saying, I love you. But she doesn't realize it until much later. So it is possible to show love without saying the words. And it is possible to say you love somebody but not put 
love in action. Love is performed as something that's done. Now that's an extreme example of a person who is abusing their family. But I just want you to think about it. I want to establish in your mind the reality that people can say one thing, but then live something else. And the thing they live out is actually the truth. Now, it is normative to expect a Christian to love God. It's normal. It shouldn't be extreme for those who say they're Christians to be found, to be, found out to be lovers of God. For a Christian to live in a way that says they have no, no concern for God is abnormal. It's abnormal for a person who says they're a Christian to live in a way that says they do not love God, that they have no concern for God. That's not normal. Now, if, you're, if you say you're a Christian, but you're living in a way that says you have no concern for God, it means one of two things. It either means, first of all, that you are not a Christian, or it means that you are so backslidden and calloused that only you know if you're a Christian. Everyone around you may be saying that they're not a Christian, but you know. You say, well, I don't know if I agree with that. One of my, one of my friends, he's a... He's a missionary for a long time, and his, his oldest son, when he got to be 18 or 19 years of age, they lived in Mexico, he said, you know, Dad, I'm done with this Christian business. I'm out. And so he, he didn't, they had a little falling out, and he didn't speak to his son or hear from his son for 20 years. He said, we tried to find him, we tried to locate him. He said, but you know, we're in Mexico, man. Just a sea of people. He said he just disappeared. He said we had mutual friends and connections. We, we heard about where he was and what he was doing. He got married, got divorced, and got married again. And he started a business. It failed. He started another business. It prospered. He said, but he had no contact with us whatsoever. And then my friend's wife got terminal cancer and she was dying. And a mutual friend told his son, hey, I heard your mom has cancer and she's terminal. So this kid, he calls his mom right out of the blue and says, hey, it's me, and he talks to her. And they had a great restoration. And when the father is talking to his son, he says, son, are you, you're reconciled to your mother, but are you reconciled to Christ? <laughs> and the son said, yeah. He said, dad, I've been a Christian all these years, but I've just been backslidden. I've been away from God. He said, said, I knew that I was doing the wrong things. I knew I was not honoring the Lord with my life. But the Lord has brought me back to him now in this moment. And so, you know, we may look at people sometimes and say, that person is definitely not a Christian, but we don't really know, do we? You can only know for sure about yourself. Only yourself. Now, I do not like to de-Christianize people. If a person tells me they're a Christian, I may ask them to give me sometimes what gives them the confidence to say that, to make that assertion? But generally, I accept their word when they say to me that they are a Christian. I do that because for myself, there were years of my life where no one would have identified me as a Christian, but I knew that I was one. Listen to what the London Confession says. The London Confession may not be known to you. It was drawn up by, the, some, some, by, by a few Baptist churches in London, England in 1687. But here's what they say about backslidden Christians. It says... Though they may, though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world and the power of corruption remaining in them and through neglect of their means of preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein 
whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit and come to have their graces and comforts impaired and have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded and they may hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. This paragraph could describe you today. Today, God may be using this little question, do you love God, to call you to repent of your disobedience and get right with God. Get right with God. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, don't know, I don't know how things, how things are culturally. When I say get right with God, you guys all know what that means? Get right with God. It means to get your relationship with him right, to restore the relationship. And I put here in my notes to say, hey, stop messing around and get right with God. <laughs> Quit playing. Quit goofing off. Get right with God while you can. Get right with him today. You're miserable in your disobedience. And you're only going to get more miserable The longer you wait to get right with God, you're just going to make yourself more and more miserable and loathsome. Whether or not you realize it, you are hurting yourself and you either are right now or soon will begin to hurt the people in your life because you are not right with God. Being right with God is the balance point of your life. If you're not right with God, everything else is going to be out of of whack, it's going to be out of kilter. Get right with God. You could do it even now. In your heart, you could bow the head of your heart and say to God, I am sorry. You could come clean with the Almighty God. Now here's what happens sometimes. We think, oh, I can't get right with God. Because God may not have me. Now, I've been married to Valerie. Today's Valerie and I's 24th anniversary. That's nice. I've, I've never had anybody applaud that before, but I know that had to be for Valerie because <laughs> we've been married 24 years today, January 2nd, 1998, and, and as a married couple, we've, we've had one or two disagreements. We've had one or two big fights. I may have yelled at her once or twice. She may have yelled at me once or twice. Things may or may not have been broken in our house. <laughs> don't, ask, don't ever ask Matt about the lamp. <laughs> now, in that time with Valerie, I know I've, I know I've done things to, to offend her or hurt her, and I, knew in, and I know I need to go make it right with her. And I've had to make the trip down the hallway more than once. And in our house in Oklahoma, it was a very long hallway. And that hallway just seemed to go forever. I've walked down the hallway more than once to the bedroom door to go in there to talk to her. And while I'm making that trip down the hallway to talk to her, to make up with her, I wonder to myself, is she going to forgive me? And sometimes there'll be a voice will say, why should she? You've been a jerk to her (laughs) a hundred times. But every time I've come to her, And said, Valerie, I'm sorry about this. She's forgiven me. She's given me a warm reception. 
Now, friends, I wish I could say I had been the same way towards her. But I'm not always that way. Sometimes my, the, my bestowal of forgiveness to her, my reconciliation with her, is not, is not like it ought to be. It gets stuck in my craw. And I don't want to make up with her. I want to hang her over the fire a little bit and roast her a little bit. I want to get my pound of flesh. Vindictive and vengeful is how we, how we are. But that's not how God is. If you want to get right with God, God will receive you in this very moment. You will receive from Him a warm reception. He will take you back. He will receive you to Himself. Remember that great story in Luke 15 about the prodigal son who comes back to the father. The father doesn't put him on probation. The father doesn't make him do penance or atone for his sins or disobedience. No, he receives him back. If you were to bow your head in your heart now and say to God, I am away from you. Lord, I am not right with you. Please forgive me. What you will find from God is a warm reception. And I wouldn't be surprised if you actually felt the love of God poured out on you if you do it. Get right with God. Now, loving God is something that all Christians struggle with. Or at least, loving Him as we should. Our love for God can wane in intensity excuse me, or fervor. Now, that's why we have to work on it. 1 John 5.21 says this. It warns us to watch out for idols because idols can steal our affections. Things can come up between us and God. Romans 1 says that man's rejection of God is in part because man loves himself more than he loves God. If we use the biblical illustration of a man and a wife, we know that a relationship between a man and a woman can deteriorate through neglect. Listen to Proverbs 10, this is, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes 10.18. This is the verse about neglect. Through laziness, the rafters sag, and because of idle hands, the house leaks. You ever seen a house that nobody lives in, nobody cares for, they just neglect it and just leave it sitting? What happens to it? It just sags. You don't take care of the roof, you don't knock the snow off, you don't get the leaves out of the gutter, you don't pay attention to it, it the thing begins to leak through neglect. If you just leave something, it just deteriorates. If you do not work on your relationship with God, it will deteriorate. It will deteriorate not because God changes, it deteriorates because you change. In Mark 12, verses 29 through 30, Jesus Christ our Lord was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the most important one is this. this this He quotes Deuteronomy 6, which I mentioned earlier. Jesus says, hear, O Israel, this is the great commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And what Jesus is saying there, it means that there is only one God to love. There's not many gods to love. There's only one true and holy God. And Him we should love, and He must be loved completely. That's what it means with your, all your heart all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. It means we must, devote the whole, we must devote the whole of ourselves to Him. Loving Him completely. You say, well, 
I don't know if I should, I don't know about this. Loving. My love for God is, is perfect. It would never fade or weaken. You know, if you are the kind of person who says something like that, I know you have to be a little bit wacko. Because a person who knows God knows their love and affection for God goes up and down. The Bible says the spirit is willing, but what's weak? The flesh is weak. The only night of the week you're going to get either really bad rest is on Saturday night. You're going to not want to go to church on Sundays because you didn't sleep well the night before. <laughs> or various other things. Listen to these warnings from Scripture. In Revelation 2 verse 4 To the church at Ephesus, Jesus Christ said this, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. A lot of preachers talk about what is the first love. What's the thing you love the most when you first become a Christian? God. (laughs) You love Him. In 1 John 2.15, we're warned, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Listen to Colossians 3, verses 1 to 5. Since you have been raised with Christ, that's born again, resurrected, spiritually, Paul says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, the things that will distract you from doing this. Here's what he says. This is verse 5, Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever brings to your earthly, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And he mentions these several things. Sexual immorality impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. You see, the, the church at Ephesus, they forsook their love of God. John said to Christians in his little letter, he said, Do not love the world, because they will pull you away from the Heavenly Father. And to the Colossian church, God says in His Word that you must intentionally set your affections above and then kill The hindrances to your affections. The authorized version uses this phrase, mortifying ourselves, reckoning ourselves to be dead in these areas. Now the culture that we live in, it yells at us. Do not love God. Do not put your hope on God. So the world around us is saying, do not love God. And then Satan is coming along and Satan is whispering in your ear, do not love God. And then you have the most terrible enemy of all trying to get you to not love God, and that's your fallen nature. The old man who lives within you, that sinful nature, hungers and pines for sinful things. You may say, well, (laughs) have you ever looked at another person as a Christian and thought, you know, it's really easy for them to be a Christian. You ever looked at people like that? Have you ever noticed how some people are really, are really more disciplined than others? And it's, they can just turn a mental switch. If they know they shouldn't eat something, they just, turn, they just go, I'm not going to eat that anymore, and they never eat it anymore. Now, I've, ma- I've made the decision not to eat candy a million times. I made it Saturday. 
and Friday <laughs> and last week. You know, all these people bringing candy to your house at the holidays, isn't that, it's a mixed blessing, isn't it? I think we had, we had the Christmas Eve service and somebody made a bunch of those Buckeyes and they left some in the kitchen back there. I can't tell you how many times during the day a voice spoke to me and said, Buckeye. <laughs> Down the hallway I come. <laughs> I'm just going to take one. I should have just took the whole, bat, the whole batch because <laughs> I took a hundred trips instead of just one big trip. You know? But some people, some people seem to be more disciplined than others. But here's the common experience of a Christian. Christians struggle with their sin nature. We don't all struggle with the same things. We don't all struggle with the same temptations. But we're all struggling with this fallen nature that tries to lure us into disobedience to God. Listen to Romans chapter 7. This is verses 21 through 25. Now this is the Apostle Paul writing. This is the greatest Christian who ever lived. The Apostle Paul. He wrote the majority of the New Testament. There would be no Gentile Christianity if it were not for the Apostle Paul. This is the greatest Christian. And here's what he says in Romans 7. He says, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. There's a great struggle that goes on inside of Christians. We know that we should love God. We know that we should obey Him. But then there's this other thing inside that says we should not obey God. Have you ever been sitting in church and thought of committing sins? Well, thanks for not admitting. You know that story in the Old Testament about David and Bathsheba? You guys know the story? On a day when kings should have went out to battle, David went up on the roof of the palace. And when he got there on the roof of the palace, he looked across the way and he saw a woman taking a bath and she was very beautiful. And he decided he wanted to have her. So he had her come over and they committed adultery. <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon says this about that. He says, why did David go on the roof? Why did he go to a place of solitude? Why, does he go, why would a man go up to the roof? And, they, and Spurgeon says, well, he's a king, surrounded by people, around him all the time. You know, your majesty, what about this? What about that? Have you ever been a supervisor at a job, and once you become a supervisor, everybody wants to talk to you about something, everybody's got a problem, everybody's got a complaint, everybody's got an issue, they want to come and give, give it to you, and, and you want to try to find a place of quiet? Well, here's David, an executive. A husband, a father, a king, a general. And to get away from the hustle and bustle of the palace, Spurgeon says, maybe he went up on the, to the housetop to pray. 
Maybe he went up there in the evening of the day to pray. And while he is up there, what happens? There's the woman. Spurgeon says, it could be that Satan will invade every intimate time we try to have with the Lord. Satan never rests. Have you ever been praying or reading your Bible and have sinful thoughts leap into your mind? This is the conflict that we have with the fallen nature. The fallen nature. To struggle. We have to actively, actively work against being dominated by the old nature. But why should we bother with it? If we're saved, if we're born again, if our ticket is punched for heaven, if we're guaranteed to go to glory through the blood of Jesus Christ, why should I fight the old nature? We must fight the old nature because we love God. Because we love Him. Where there is love, there is desire. And there is a desire, a passion to show love. If you love God, you want to obey Him. You want to please Him. If you love Him. Now the second half of our principle is to love people. Love God. We should love God and we should also love people. Now in, in, in Mark 12... The Pharisees come and they say to Jesus, what's the great commandment? And Jesus says, well, the first commandment is to love God with all all your your being. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as what? As yourself. Now what Jesus does when he, in both answers, he quotes the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6. And then he quotes Leviticus 19, verse 18. Now, the whole section in Leviticus 19, that whole section appears to me to be a description of what it looks like to love your neighbor. Now, I'm going to read it to you. This is Leviticus 19, verse 9 through 18. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor. Verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time and pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of, of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the description of what it is like to love your neighbor. And I think it's, it's obvious the things he says here. This is what it looks like. When we say, love your neighbor as yourself, that's what it looks like. Now, because I'm, a per- <laughs> because I'm a depraved person, 
I, I, I would say like this, like most people. I, I think some people might say it this way. Well, I'm not going to say what I would say, so I'm just going to move ahead. The summation of all this is verse 18. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor, the people in your environs about you, the people who you live close to. This is what Jesus says. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor. Then, in 1 Corinthians, we have an apostolic list of the attributes of love, and God tells us in 1 Corinthians that we should love each other. And 1 Corinthians 13 follows 1 Corinthians 12. And 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the gifts of the Spirit. And the the leading section of chapter 13 is about love. And love is a gift of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5.22, you read read about the fruit of the Spirit. And the very first in the list is the word love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. I thought, well, maybe, maybe the English translation just puts it that way because the editors want to do it that way. But I looked in the Greek New Testament. Guess what the first word is? Agapates, love. So a fruit of the Spirit, a fruit of being controlled by the Holy Spirit is to have love for others. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. And if you have your Bible, maybe take it out and look at it because I think this will, this will be very helpful to us. We should roll these words over in our mind as we read it, because here's what love is. So if you say you love someone, this is what the love will look like. And and this kind of love seems to be different from loving your neighbor. This is a more specific kind of love. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy It does not boast. It is not proud. The 2011 NIV says it does not honor others. The 1984 NIV says love is not rude. (laughs) It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is what the Apostle Paul says love is. This is what love is. Now, friends, if we loved each other in our families like this, what would it be like? If that was the kind of love that was manifested in our families between brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, moms and dads. What would it be like if our love was patient with each other? If our love was kind? If we didn't envy one another's good prosperity? If we didn't boast about our own prosperity? If we weren't proud? If we weren't unkind to one another? If we weren't easily angered? If we didn't keep score? What would it be like if we loved this way? What would it be like in our family? What would it be like in our church fellowship if we love this way? Well, I'll tell you what it would be like. Well, you know what it would be like too, don't you? What would it be like? It would be awesome. It would be magnificent. It would be glorious. To quote Daryl Hesselink, like heaven on earth. Love. Love. 
It would be great. Think about it in your own marriage. If you could love your wife this way, what would it be like? If you could love your husband this way, your children, what would it be like? It'd be magnificent. This is what real love is. This is the kind of love you see in Jesus Christ himself. This is love. Read the Old Testament. See how God's love for Israel is demonstrated. How can we have this kind of love? How can we have love one for another like this? Well, first of all, it takes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us to this kind of love. And it is an unholy spirit that leads us into a different kind of love. You may say, well, I I do love people. I love good people. There are people who I love in this way, but it's just the jerks. It's just the jerks that I don't love. To the jerks, I offer them the gift of not smacking them silly. That's how I show my love to them is by not driving them into the ground. We have to remember what Jesus, our Lord, our teacher and example said. Jesus said this, To you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Not What spirit is leading you? Is it the Holy Spirit or something else? It takes the Holy Spirit. To love as Paul is described in 1 Corinthians. It also takes a choice. Love is a choice. This is is kind of debatable sometimes about what is love. So me and Valerie got married 24 years ago. I would say based on the way I love her now, I didn't love her back then. Because we are much, I like her a lot better. I know her a lot better. I love her. But I feel strongly for her. What about those times when neither she nor I is unlovable? Are lovable? Prickly. It's a choice to love. Love is a choice. You know the Bible puts in an imperative for men? (coughs) Husbands, love your wives. Love your wife. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Did Christ, did he look down upon the earth and say, these sinners, they're so wonderful, I'm just going to love them? Is that what he did? There's nothing lovable in us. He bestowed his love upon us by his grace, by his undeserved kindness. He bestowed his love upon us. And so love is a choice. Choosing to love. I love you, and I'm going to treat you this way. Romans 9.13, the Lord says, Did not I hate Esau and love Jacob? He chose to love one and to not love the other. Now there's a traditional story in church history about the Apostle John. The Apostle John, he was, he's the only apostle to die of old age. Some people say he lived to be in his early 100s before he died. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but he lived a long time. But in his old age, church tradition tells us that he was old and infirmed and he had to be carried, from, carried to church, carried to the worship. And when they would carry him there, he, they would lay him down in the midst of his brethren 
And he would say to the church over and over again, love one another, love one another. It is our Lord's command, love one another. Why would he say that? Why wouldn't he say something else? Why would he just say love? Because love, it does a church body good to love one another. And our love for one another, it's constantly under assault, constantly under attack. The Satan, Satan wants to drive us apart from one another. We must love each other, loving our neighbors, our brothers and sisters as ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. In 1967, John Lennon wrote these words, Love is all you need. Have you guys heard that song? Love is all you need. I think the Beatles are going to be more popular than ever now with this new uh, documentary that came out. Which is pretty fascinating. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. Well, we do need love. We absolutely need love. It is what we need, but love is not all we need. We also need truth. We need truth because truth tells us what love really is. Sometimes in a Christian church, <coughs> churches know they need love, so they overcorrect. They overcorrect into a, a pseudo-love. They abandon truth in favor of what's called love. Or churches overcorrect in their pursuit of truth, and they actually become unloving. Have you ever been a part of a church fellowship that was unloving? <laughs> I have. They choose truth over love. It seems like a noble choice, to be honest with you, sometimes. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus was a church that went through theological conflict all the time. They were always weighing the truth. Their battle for theological truth, their battle for orthodoxy was important. Jesus says, I know what you have done towards my name. But the conflict for truth, their conflict for orthodoxy had caused them to become hard-hearted. They were hardened by war. And they were no longer a loving church. They had the truth. They were orthodox. They were a true Christian church, but they had become unloving. And I've been around churches like that. I've been around Christians who are so devoted to truth, so devoted to winning the argument that they were unloving, uncharitable, and unkind. And my friends, we need both love and truth. Truth is often chosen by churches. They choose to be a true church a doctrinally sound church, and they become unloving. Now, the reason people choose truth over love is because it's easier to, to be truth truthful than it is to be loving. You see, knowledge and truth both permit us to become proud. What, if, what did the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians? Knowledge does what? The authorized version says, knowledge puffs up. Look what I know. Look at what I know. Look at all the books I've read. <clears throat> Knowledge and truth allow us to become proud. But love is harder. Love is harder because love requires humility. 
and dying to self. Dying to self. When Valerie and I first got married, one of the first things we went to was a Steve Green concert. How many of you know who Steve Green is? You guys all need prayer. <laughs> we went to this concert, and she was, and we're newly married, and she was gushing about how excited she was to see Steve Green. And just to be honest with you, I was sick of it. I was sick of her talking about Steve Green. I was sick of hearing his name. I was sick of hearing his voice. And I was sick of standing in line to see him. <laughs> James Dobson. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, ugh. And so we go in there, we sit down, and, and, and during, during his concert, he calls his wife on the phone. He says, I always call my wife to check in with her. And he's like, hey, honey, how are you? And Valerie's like, isn't that so sweet? I'm like, no, this guy's a, this guy's a sissy. <laughs> he's up there belting it out, you know, singing. I just, I just can't take it. And we went home, you know, and I decided it's time for some theological truth here. I told Valerie, I said, I want you to get rid of all his tapes. Tapes. You guys remember tapes? Give her all those cassette tapes. She's like, well, I don't like that guy. You know, I had some, I had some you know, made-up reason. I can't even remember what it was. But it all boiled down to the fact it was that I didn't like the way she was gushing over him. And I said, get rid of all those tapes. You know what that girl did? In my sleep, I woke up to a hammer. <laughs> you know what she did? She threw away every single one of those tapes. I don't know where they are. She got rid of them all. Why? Why'd she do that? Because she loved an idiot. She loved me. And looking back, you know, I, what, what, all it was was a 19-year-old husband who was just stupid, no perspective, no, no grace, I was just a bum. You know? That's what love is. But, you know, she didn't say, she didn't fight for her rights. She didn't fight over it. She just did it. And I don't know if she cried while she threw them away or what she did. I don't know if she wept her way <laughs> to the altar. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but she, but she did it for love. That's, what love. that's what love is. Love gives over. Now today we have Apple Music, and I told her, get all the Steve Green you want. (laughs) That's what love is. Love is not devoted to self. Love is devoted to other people. Jesus said this in John 13. Jesus said that by love will all people know that you are my disciples. And it's not love for him that's the, the, not love for him, but love for each other. Because you love one another. Loving each other despite our flaws in our character, in our doctrine, in our manners, but our love one for another. And wherever there is love for God, it naturally follows there will be love for people and love for truth. 
Loving God and loving people. These are, I mean, I, we have these things up here. Love God and love people. This is, this is, these are our, our primary objectives is to love God and to love people. This is what Jesus says. These are the great commands. So today on this first Sunday of the year, I want you to examine your heart. Do you love God? Do you love God? Do you love others? And if in the echo chambers of your heart, the answer is that you do not love God and you do not love others, you need to work out the answer to that question. You may not be able to work it out today, but go home from this place of worship. Take the Bible in hand. Go to, go to the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. Read one chapter every day. Read one psalm every day. And cry out to God and say, Lord, show me what the problem is here. What's going on? So you can figure out what the problem is. But chances are that you already know what the problem is. And you need to fix it. Could be because you're not a Christian at all. Could be because you got some you're backslidden, you have some sin that's just festering in your life. It could be because you are hurting. You know, when you're hurting people, this is an old maxim, hurting people hurt people. Forgive this metaphor, but you ever had a sweet old dog and the dog is hurting, and you go to pick him up, and what's the dog do? He takes a snap at you. You may be just, you're hurting because you don't like the things that have happened in your life. The pain of what's come into your life is, is causing you to snap at everybody. Go to the Lord and ask God to help you, to give you the grace you need. Grace to help you not be nasty, even though you feel nasty. Let's pray together. Father, I preached this sermon and talked about loving you and loving each other. And I have preached and exhorted people to go higher than, than, I, than, I, than I am, Lord. My love for you is not perfect. My love for my fellow man and my fellow Christians, it is not right. Lord, I, I pray you would help me. Give me greater love, Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me and wash me, Father. Create in me a clean heart. Purge me with hyssop like David said, Lord. My wound is, my sins are loathsome to me. It's a stinking, it's a stink in my nostrils. Lord, forgive me. Lord, make me like Jesus. Make us all like Jesus. Change our hearts and minds, we pray. In Christ's holy name.